In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Robert Marks is our guest this week on Money Tales. Robert tells us he always wanted to build a house. He even remembers being in middle school and doodling houses while his teachers droned on and on. About 10 years ago, Robert and his wife found a beautiful piece of land that would be perfect for their dream home. They spent two years planning the construction, working closely with an architect, and then another couple of years building it. When the house was finished, it was incredible. Everyone loved it. His wife, their dog, their family, and their friends. Robert liked to tell people that he built the greatest house in the history of Cleveland, Ohio. There was only one problem. Within a week of moving in, Robert realized he didn't like living there. Eventually, his wife missed their old neighborhood and they decided to move back. In reflection, Robert realizes building the home was his dream, not necessarily living there and changing their lifestyle. Robert founded Fidelity Voice and Data in 1999. Starting the company with a $600 investment, he ultimately grew it into a $30 million business. He sold the company in 2015 and decided to focus his attention on continuing to give back to his local community through multiple philanthropic initiatives. Along with a co-founder, Robert launched the startup Projector LLC in 2020. Here are three money topics Robert hits on in this conversation. First, what it has been like to accomplish his father's goal of becoming a millionaire. Second, the importance of accumulating wealth as opposed to embracing the money habits he was exposed to as a child, where his family tended to earn and then spend more than those earnings. And third, how Robert intentionally lives by four Ps, nurturing his personal life, professional life, physical well-being, and his philanthropic initiatives. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Robert Marks. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammie, I want to share that I woke up this morning from a money dream. <laughs> Oh my goodness, Sandy. It was the weirdest money dream ever. Uh-oh. What was it? <laughs> Dreams are so vague. I assume I was with family members and we were at a taqueria and we gotten our food and I was looking at the bill and I realized that instead of charging us for four items, they charged us for 24 items. <laughs> <laughs> and the bill was It was per chip. <laughs> it was like this massive bill and I kind of woke up. Um, having a little bit of stress, like, oh gosh, now I have to go explain and have a conversation with someone. And it was like causing a little bit of anxiety. So 
I don't know if you have any dream interpretation skills or if any of our <laughs> listeners do, but uh, it caused me to pause and question what's going on inside my brain. I'm curious, Annie, do you always check your bill? Uh, in real life, not in just real in dreams. Life, in real life, I know I should check my bill because that was one of the key learnings I had from my grandparents growing up. I oftentimes check my bill. I, If I'm involved in a conversation, I will admit I don't always check. You know, Sandy, I don't. My dad always did and my mom always did. But I, I don't very frequently. And then I do leave sometimes going, wow, that was, well, well, shoot, I forgot if they they didn't deliver such and such. And I think, I should have checked that bill. That's pretty simple financial skills to do. Financial Maybe stats. that's what the dream is about. Maybe I need to check my bills more. Well, let's see <laughs> if our Money Tales guest today checks his receipts when he's leaving a restaurant. Robert Marks, welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you, Cammie. I'll answer that question. I should, like Sandy said, sometimes I do because I've many times done the double tip. You know, they put the mm-hmm. tip on there mm-hmm. and then I and they do really well with me. My wife <laughs> got really good at making sure I don't do the, the double tip for many years now. So oh. other than that, I don't do the itemized look. But I think if you have a podcast called Money Tales and you talk money all the time, maybe you're going to dream about money one day. <laughs> and I'm so. not certified to analyze Sandy, but I'm just thinking that. I was just hoping my money dreams would be much more interesting. <laughs> more of a nightmare. <laughs> it's kind of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I know. Robert, would you please introduce yourself and provide a couple of pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted who you are today? Sure. I live in the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. I was born here, raised here. Other than four years of college at the University of South Florida, I've been here pretty much my whole life, from childhood to my professional life. I could define myself many ways, certainly an entrepreneur, but I'd say first and foremost, uh, father of four children, husband to my wife. Of We've been together 30 years. I think in two weeks, it's going to be 27 years of marriage. And uh, I'm just me, I guess. Just you. I think you sound pretty special. I like that introduction. Robert, so you grew up in Cleveland. Tell us about money in your family. When did money have meaning when you were a young person? Sure. So, you know, uh, I was born in 1966, so that'll age me, but that really means I grew up in the 70s. And as a child, you certainly in in my neighborhood, and we were extremely middle class, uh, grew up in a community that everyone thought we were the wealthy community. I assure you, the houses were very close together. They were bungalows and split levels like the Brady Bunch and and colonials from 1,400 square feet to probably 2,700 square feet. But uh, we were known as a money community. People moved there because the school system was great. It's why my parents chose it. They did not have money. One great thing, as much as you had complete autonomy to pretty much raise yourself, there was no programming back then. We had a bike, we had our feet, and we went out and we found the neighborhood. And you can get a football, basketball, baseball game any day of the week in the neighborhood. It was truly a great neighborhood. We had one rule in my family, which is dinner at six o'clock. You missed that you were in big trouble. And and it was wonderful. I have five siblings. So there's eight of us, my parents and my five siblings and myself. And at dinner, my dad came home, always came home in a suit and tie. And he always spoke about his business. And he always talked to us about how he's going to be a millionaire one day. You know, he was a dreamer and an entrepreneur. And 
the other aspect of money is that there was always money problems in the family. And, and I would describe my father who was in charge of the money this way. He was an earner. He was a spender. And then he spent a little more. So he definitely um, did not plan for the future. He liked good things and fun things as much as there probably always were money stress in the house. We were never wealthy. Uh, he absolutely liked to have fun. And we traveled and we went out and we had a boat. And he bought cars he couldn't afford. And we were probably living in a house we couldn't afford. My parents never equated six children to costing money. My mom just wanted a girl and she never got one. So he <laughs> didn't realize six braces, six college educations. Uh, so there was always a lot of stress. But at the same time, perhaps if you didn't know us intimately from the outside world, we were doing great. But he was good at accumulating debt, not good at accumulating wealth. And, that, and those two words, accumulate wealth, are words I didn't really understand because I learned those habits from those six o'clock dinners and living that life. That when I got my first job out of college, woohoo, I'm making $20,000 a year. I'm rich. I can go to Vegas. I could buy a boat. Well, I couldn't. And sadly, by the time I turned 30 years old, that's when I really started understanding money literacy and accumulating wealth. And at that point, I had done, you know, I was bad at literacy and, and I hadn't accumulated wealth. Robert, this is very interesting. So you just said that you really began to learn about financial literacy when you were in your 30s. What did you take away from growing up in your family home? And how did that serve you during your 20s? Well, I assure you, I grew up in a home filled with love. We were a very tight group, six boys. Yeah, we beat the crap out of each other. And it's amazing that when my parents moved out of that house, the house didn't just crumble into pieces because uh, we were rough on that property. <laughs> and our neighbors were, they probably half missed us and they were half celebrating because their lawns weren't getting ruined anymore by us playing on them. But um, my mother was a social worker and my father was an entrepreneur. My father, definitely very conservative, right-leaning kind of person and high-strung and intense. My mother was the ultimate community organizer. Before Barack Obama, there was Judy Marks. And she was involved in every committee, every organization. She, uh, as a full-time social worker, an extremely well-educated person, she was helping AIDS babies in the early 80s. And she was taking you know kids who had specialized needs and, and creating foster homes for them and finding foster parents who would house 15, 20 kids. She was just an absolutely incredible person and an incredible do-gooder. So now I had that balance of do some good, but also I wanted my own business to make money and, and that uh, and that capitalist side. So it was a really cool way to grow up. A lot of chaos, uh, but a lot of love. And we, and we were very tight and, and we're still very tight to this day. Robert, you've introduced yourself as an entrepreneur and you're alluding to a business. Tell us more about your businesses. Did you just come out of college and start? your own businesses? No, I gave you the end of the story. So ah. uh, when I came out of college, I really didn't want all that stress. I didn't really want to uh, have that burden at the time of a business. Um, I was going to go work for somebody else and, and work either through the corporate ladder or some way find my way. And through some success working for other people, I developed good skill sets and, and validated that I felt I was a leader, validated I felt I had the ability to make money. But I always came to the same conclusion, the people I worked for, and I worked for small business people, and I worked for one of the largest companies in the world that had 135,000 employees. And consistently what I would run into, and it bothered me is whoever I worked for, it was about their dreams. It was about them accumulating wealth. I was there to make sure that they could accomplish their goals. 
And that just drove me crazy. And the corporate culture of those companies was like that because you're dealing with people who were selfish. And it wasn't about the people that were helping them build it. And I wasn't entitled and I wasn't demanding more money and demanding better treatment. Like I said, my first job was $400 a week or $20,000 a year. And I thought I was rich. But when you realize that you're, I hate to use the word subservient, but in some ways I felt that to the owners of the businesses. And I looked around at my coworkers and they all acted like that was normal. It bothered me. That's when I first started looking at, well, maybe I'll do my own thing. And I had my first idea when I was 24 years old, two years out of college, cell phones were just taking off. And I grew up in an environment where my dad was really ahead of his time with monthly recurring revenue type businesses, subscription-based businesses. Today, we're used to it. Cell phones, cable. It's the norm today. Everything. Everything subscription. Software as a service. The whole world's going that. My dad was into that. Going back into the mid-70s, he started many companies. And one of them was a home fire and burglar alarm company where you charge a monitoring fee. And so he signed up hundreds and then thousands of businesses and and uh, unique applications, but mostly residential, you know, consumer-based business, people paying him $30 a month. So when cell phones came out, I thought to myself, wow, I got to figure this out. People were paying 55 cents a minute for a cell phone call back then. How can I position it where I can start a business and I can get 10 cents a minute? And if I have 10,000 people out there, you know, on their phone all day and I get 10 cents a minute, that's going to be a great way to make money. So I figured out in a crazy way, because back then, every market had two cell phone companies, if you recall. In Northeast Ohio, we had what was called Cellular One and GT MobileNet. And there was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there was other companies like that. Maybe you remember those companies. And they, what they really were were duopolies. And a duopoly is, in many ways, I think as bad as a monopoly because they both, they both look like they had different rates. One charged more per month and a less per minute, and one charged less per month, but more per minute. But the average user paid the same price. Mm-hmm. And I was able to take advantage of some of the laws back then where they were forced to allow me to resell their service. And so I entered the Northeast Ohio market as the third provider of a cell phone service. But it's just this guy. At 24? At 24. Crazy. <laughs> Never ran a business anything. But when I when I was to a creative way that I won't bore you, was able to do that, I became the first person reselling cellular service in this region. And it was working. And I could basically make money selling the phone because that's how the market was back then. The average user, they were all business people. I had some clients that would literally terminate the receptionist whose only job was to take messages because there was no voicemail back then and no caller ID back then. And they they were spending three, $4,000 a month on their cell phone and they didn't care. And I'm making $800 a month on that user. I mean, that's the kind of business I found. And I thought, no, this is great. We're going to, we're going to do real well. And you know, in any commodity, when things become commoditized, it was a business person's product when I started. And 60 months later, you could buy phones in Walmart and kids had phones and the average user, you know, went from $500 a month to about $100 a month. And my margins went from 36% to 19%. Needless to say, I was fortunate enough at the age of just before I turned 30, April of 1996, I was able to sell that business to a Another person who was in the cellular business doing resale work, I had about 3,000 individual cell phones and probably 2,100 individual customer accounts. I sold that business. And because the business had really gone to heck 
in that short period of time as it commoditized and changed quickly. When I started, there was no caller ID, no voicemail, nothing. And all phones were analog and everyone was like pirating and listening to everyone else's calls, a different world. It changed over those 60 months and I netted enough money for a down payment on the house and buy some furniture and a kitchen remodel. So I'd say I rounded first. I wasn't a home run, but I didn't lose my butt on it. Amazing. Uh, other than the opportunity cost, because if I would have stayed in corporate America, I probably would have made more money, but that's okay. And it, of course, after that, I said, okay, I'm done with being an entrepreneur and I'm going to go get a job because you know, <laughs> I'm over too, right? Didn't work like working for people. Entrepreneurship was tough. And uh, I went to work and, I, and this is when the internet was really becoming a thing. And I got a job with AT&T on their business unit side, learning how to not only build fiber optic networks and build internet networks, but also acquire customers. And I ended up becoming a general manager for all of Ohio for AT&T in about a three-year period and went from a complete different world than I was just in. And I, I found myself back in that same boat of clearly not pursuing my dreams, but working for other people's dreams. And I found it to be a, an abusive environment. And I thought to myself, well, why can't I do what AT&T does? And what at the time there were companies like UUNet and WorldCom and Global Crossing, uh, XO Communications existed, some of these really big multi-billion dollar multinational companies. And, and I thought to myself, I could do this. I know how to build networks. I know how to acquire customers. I know how to service customers. I'll figure out how to bill them. And I'm going to start another company. I'm going to become an internet service provider. And this is in the 90s. And I would compare it this way. Imagine there's a parking lot that has a Lowe's and then you know home improvement store. And then next to that Lowe's, is a store called Home Depot and they share the same parking lot. Okay, imagine that, which you don't see. And then someone decides to put a little mom and pop hardware store in that same parking lot between the Lowe's and the home improvement. That's what I did going ahead with MCI, Sprint and AT&T. But my pricing was better initially. My service was through the charts. I had been in Cleveland my whole life. I knew the ecosystem of the environment. I had thousands of customers in the cell phone business. I had customers when I was with AT&T for three years. And I, I remember figuring out how many customers I needed to break even over the first six, seven, eight months. I didn't have a lot of cash or money. I remember when I wanted to expand into other markets and maybe your people who listen to other states will like the fact that I wanted to get to Akron, Ohio. I, I figured out that if I had eight customers pre-sold, I could then build a network real quick, get those orders uh, provisioned and have the customer have service in, a, in about a 30-day time frame and not lose money and be in the black. And I did that and literally organically grew that company for 17 years. We had over 3,000 individual strictly business, you know, B2B. Uh, we were doing over $20 million a year of annual billing. We rolled in voice over IP service, which emerged in the early 2000s. I built a data center. I was competing with companies like Amazon, you know, AWS and doing cloud wow. computing services. And we built a nice business, never took on a penny of debt, built it organic from that first customer and being creative and lowering the, the, the monthly nut of myself and my wife for the first two years to a ridiculous amount of money so we can survive and had that exit in December of 2015. Congratulations, Robert. What an exciting series of stories of going back and forth from being in positions where you felt you were creating wealth for someone else to being in the driver's seat of starting a business and creating wealth for yourself. I'm curious because you said you started the second company in when you were about 30 years old. And that's when you said you also 
were becoming financially literate. Tell us about that. It was actually 33 I started the company because I had that three-year window from selling the first company and then going to work for a very large telecommunications company. But I still didn't have any personal capital. I didn't know how to raise money. I uh, tried to actually raise money. I put together a book and did some pitches. And and what I learned is don't buy someone dinner until after they give you a check. I bought a lot of dinners. And they know who they are and they never had any intention of investing or they didn't understand it. And one guy said, ah, that'll never work. But he said that after he had his Ruth Chris meal. You're really trying to impress. We're kids. We're learning. So, you know, I did have enough money that I felt I could survive about 18 months. And I sat down with my wife. We literally cut our expenses down to almost nothing. We already had two kids. So here it is. I'm 33 years old. My wife. Stop working because she took a tougher job, which is to raise the kids. We had two children at that point who were one and a half and newborn, and we're doing a startup and we don't have a lot of money. I mean, it was wild, but this is life and you you have to pursue your dreams. And, you know, and I wanted to work in a better corporate culture. And I was already understanding probably because of AT&T when I started there, 401k. Wow, that's a cool thing. Okay, I heard those are important and you should accumulate wealth that way. And we actually had a pension back then, which I never got. I wasn't there long enough to vest, uh, but there was a pension. And of course, I'm now starting to see my friends, friends who, when we graduated in college in 88, went on to law school. Now it's 1991 and they're practicing law. And I see the wealth they're accumulating and we're talking and I'm hearing about the things they're doing and they're investing in properties and they're just doing great things. And I, even though I had an interesting career and I, pull off that miracle to buy that house. I'm living in the same neighborhood as them. I'm not there with them. And it was actually my older brother. He's six years older than me. And he said to me one day, and he he grew up the same way I did, you know, that earn, spend plus, right? And he said, Robert, we have to accumulate wealth. I remember telling him, those are the two greatest words you've ever said to me. And maybe anyone's ever said to me. And it was like that. Uh, I know it may sound cheesy and a fairy tale story, but that's what it was. Why did he say that? I'm I'm curious. Because he was six years older. He's he's 39 years old and he had accumulated no wealth. And he, he's a, one of the greatest salespeople I've ever seen, a serious earner. He was already having a great career, but he realized we grew up in an environment where, well, you can't really afford the Porsche, but you can afford the Porsche payments, kind of get the Porsche, you know, versus no, 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 let's build a base of, of money, let money work for us. Let's think about retirement. Let's think about college. Let's think about vacations, maybe a winter home someday. You know, it was those mentalities. We were having very intimate conversations about the things that we didn't understand. Uh, the other thing, and just to add some levity to this, we also didn't know how to eat good. When you have five brothers and a father who was always a very heavy, big guy, and a mother who's a full-time worker, when food was available, you grabbed it quick and you ate it quick. And it was usually crap. So we had those two problems. We didn't understand money. We didn't understand accumulate wealth in that bucket. And of course, we were also bad eaters. So we also started talking about that as well. Uh, so I think there's some parallels. I, I think the financial yeah. health and physical health have some nice parallels to work on. Well, in college, I remember as I was getting close to graduating, with no idea what I was going to do, you start panicking. You know, college will last forever. No reason to worry about it. Well, we're in the last semester. Time to worry about it. And I wasn't in the best shape. I was really in good shape in high school, but I wasn't in the best shape, as you can imagine. I indulged. Um, I had no clue about my professional life and my personal life. You know, you start thinking about relationships and you want to get married someday. So the three P's I came up with, your personal life, your professional life, and your physical. And I remember saying then, if I could ever get two of those three under control... I'll have a great, happy life. 
And I think I managed to have about one of them under control for about those first 10, 15 years after college. I think once my company that I sold in 2015, I think the last seven, eight years of that business, I probably had two of the P's under control. Since 2018, I've had all three. Uh, and the third one was my house. Uh, gave up beef, chicken, pork. I eat like a 21-year-old college student who's crazy about health. I eat acai bowls and smoothies, and I get my mm -hmm. 10,000 steps every day. And I, that's great because I had to, uh, you know, get into my 50s. So, and then I realized there's also a fourth P, which is philanthropy. As individual consumers, we have a checkbook and we can give 50 bucks here and the MS walk there and this charity and that charity. But if you have a successful business, it's not just the money you can help people with. I started a food bank at our office. I had 35 employees. I bought a big bin at the container store or something like that, put it in the office, sent out an email. Hey, every Friday, I'm going to run this food over to this neighboring community, Bedford Heights, that was having hunger issues in 2010. And boy, we filled that bin every week for about two years before the mayor of Bedford Heights said, we're good. We don't need any more food. So uh, it's just power. So the fourth P was philanthropy. So uh, I teach a college course now, and I just recently told my students as the semester's coming to end about my three Ps. And then I introduced the fourth P, which I don't think I was really good at until I was in my forties, that fourth P. It wasn't even a possibility. This is fascinating though, because as you talk about the fourth P of philanthropy, it really sounds like the messages and the modeling that your mother did when you were growing up really had a lasting impact on you. And especially, let me know if I'm wrong here, but it seems especially since you've had a little more time in your life to devote to things other than the business. Thousand percent, thousand percent. I've always actually been, and I maybe underplayed it, involved in the community and helped out from just being the coach to volunteering on different organizations. I'm on some boards, uh, even in college, uh, our philanthropy of my fraternity was, at the time back then, it was called the Leukemia Society of America. Now, I believe they just, they just go with ALS. It wasn't because I was looking to it, but it just kind of evolved because I was the fundraiser of some event. And all of a sudden, the chapter president for that Leukemia Society organization said, hey, Robert, uh, why don't you be on our board? We, we need some young people on the board. Everyone's old. So I was on that board. But I've, I have always done that. Uh, but it's also something that, that I rarely... It doesn't seem to be authentic to talk about it, but it came up. So the fourth mm -hmm. P came up. We're in, now we're in it. Robert, now that you've attained all the four P's of your life, what role is money playing in your life today? And how are you thinking about money? Well, that's interesting. You know, whenever I thought about an exit, I, I literally, and maybe this is a mentality, maybe it's a loser mentality as a child, seeing how we grew up and my dad was always chasing that be a millionaire one day. He was always a dreamer, always an entrepreneur. He was involved in plastics, machinery, home security, thousand other things. He never achieved it in his lifetime. And he passed away at 73 years old in 2010. So I, maybe I had that same stigma. Oh, that doesn't happen to us. You know, we were doing really well, extremely well. But before the exit, it wasn't like I accumulated, you know, the wealth I have today. So that was numbing. That was cool because that actually did happen. And and now it's about, you know, don't, don't forget, you know, you respect money, still respect money. Um, I wanted to pursue another dream. I always wanted to build a house. I remember being in fifth, sixth, seventh grade and having paper and pencil and teachers teaching whatever they were teaching. I was doodling a house, you know, and, and I knew nothing about construction, but I always wanted to build a house. And before we sold the business, uh, my wife and I found a piece of land and it was so beautiful. We bought it. 
This is probably 2013, 14. So after we sold the company, I said to my wife, Lori, I, I really want to pursue this. And I spent about two years planning it. Then I hired an architect and he and I worked so well together. We spent about another 18 months together. Uh, we started construction in June of 19. So before the pandemic, by the time it was done, the house was became a real big thing. It, it, it wasn't a mansion, but it was an incredible house. I like to tell people I built the greatest house in the history of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I really think uh, I did. I think it would even look good in the West Coast. It was a special house. So we did it. We did hit the pandemic at the end and had to deal with trades and issues. Cost-wise, I was fine because I had already secured my pricing before the pandemic and supply chain issues. We moved into the house uh, November 1st, 2020. And within a week, I realized I don't like living here. And I kept my mouth shut because my wife was so happy. We were living nice. This house was awesome. Uh, the dog was happy. My wife was happy. My kids, who kind of don't really live with us anymore, they're either in college or out of college, were loving it. The neighborhood was loving it. The, my friends and family were loving it. Had a pool, had everything. Uh, I can go on about this house forever. Why didn't you love it? Um, I think it's about the money thing. It was just too much. It was just too much. It was too much for me. I, I, I just, okay. But I kept it quiet. It was the dream to build it. I built it exactly the way I'd want a house. I nailed it. I have, when people say to me, what would you change differently? I said, like one door in my daughter's closet. I mean, I nailed this house. There was nothing to change about wow. it. And one day we're heading back to the town we used to live in where we raised our kids. And my wife said, I kind of miss it here. I miss sidewalks. I miss my friends. What do you think? And I said, Lori, the way the world is right now with this pandemic and housing pricing and there's no stock, Cleveland, Ohio is like most markets are is going crazy. I said, I could sell this house tomorrow and it would be a huge cash windfall for us. And if you're serious, I'll make the phone call. And she said, I'm serious. We never talked about it for two and a half years. She made wow. that comment. The house sold the next morning. And that's why we live here now. Oh uh, my gosh, that's so now, exciting. Um, now we bought a, a century home, a 108-year-old house that nothing is nothing worked. Everything's a disaster. You would think we went from you know the, the penthouse to the outhouse. And two weeks ago, she called my daughter who lives in Austin, Texas and said, don't tell dad, but I'm really happy here. So she's oh. happy. And then, of course, my daughter called me and said, mom's happy. <laughs> I'm happy. So I'm going to equate that back to your money thing. Um, I don't think my life has really changed at all. I, I don't have the stress of having to worry. Um, I'm able to do some nice things. Pre-pandemic, we were traveling a ton before. But otherwise, you know, I don't think much of us change. We're just, we are who we are. We did build that house. I, it's a bucket list thing and I'm right. so happy to be done with it. And I'm, I'm very happy for the new owners because they seem to be really happy in this place and it fits them more. So. Robert, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? That's a wild conversation. So I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I, um, another bucket list for me. And if any of my high school teachers or college teachers knew about this, they would if they're still alive, they'd be rolling you know, on the ground. Uh, but I, I've been teaching a college course since 2016. It's entrepreneurship. Um, the first one I taught was more about families and family business and entrepreneurship. This semester, I'm teaching a class called Field Experience, where what I like to do is look at the 32-year career I have, which isn't over yet. I, you know, I started other business about two years ago. And tell them about everything I wish I knew or all the important things I think they need to know. Even I, I even spent a week on, on financial literacy, 
you know, um, and I can't use the word check-in and savings account. They know the terms spend and reserve, which most banks now when they open up a new bank account, don't even call them checking accounts anymore. If, at least, you know, some of the banks around here do that. Teach them about a Roth versus a 401k. Teach them about accumulating wealth. I think the first question I ever ask them when they meet me and I have 22 students is, who wants to accumulate wealth in their lifetime? And all 22 hands went up. So they're getting a lot of things. I teach them about their FICO score. They don't know what FICO is. So that's a fun thing. So I am still working. Then I have those conversations every Tuesday and Thursday. So that would be my next conversation. I get to talk to these unbelievably dynamic young students who fortunately, I've always been fortunate to get seniors. Because again, they have one foot out the door and the real world's coming. And you know, we talk about things. We talk about rent versus ownership. We talk we talk about everything that that's financial. You're warming my heart, Robert. Yeah. You're, yeah, exactly. No, I think it's it's so special that you're having these conversations with kids in an entrepreneurship class because that is the foundational. That's the fitness stuff we're talking about. Like it's so important. Robert, what a treat to speak with you today on Money Tales. If listeners were wanted to find you or find out more about you, where should they go? I love LinkedIn. And I tell everybody if LinkedIn existed when I started my company in 1998, 99, I would have had, I would have been 10 times bigger. Uh, so I love LinkedIn. They certainly find me there. Robert Marks, the new business I started is called Projector. And they can look at that through Robert Marks and Projector. Robert, thank you again for joining us on the Money Tales podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.